it's almost like knighthood working with David Bowie. Talk about dignity, respect, trust. Meet Tony Michaelides. Tony's been described as a walking, talking encyclopedia of music, and for good reason, because he's worked with everyone from David Bowie to U2 and from New Order to take that. Tony's worked in promotions and as a consultant in the music industry. He's also very well known in Manchester for his time at Piccadilly Radio, where he presented his legendary show, The Last Radio Programme, from the mid-80s. He took that slot over from his good friend, Mark Radcliffe. Tony's got incredible stories about lots of famous names, and he can tell you about how true success comes from values that are very similar to ours here at Roland Dransfield. In this interview, you'll hear about no dickheads, and you'll hear about the value of hard work. So how do you go from Fallowfield to Florida via a career in the highest levels of the music industry? And why, to use a sporting analogy, is it important to play for the name on the front of your shirt and not the back? I'm Lisa Morton and this is We Built This City. Tony, welcome to We Built This City. I'm thrilled to be here, Lisa. Thank you for the invitation. (laughs) When we first talked, when I think I just set the podcast up, it was in certainly in the lockdown. I've been dying to have you on the show, so I'm really pleased. And since we've talked, you've got your own podcast show now, so we can chat about that today as well. So you're a born and bred Mancunian, and you grew up in Fallowfield, is that right? Well, there was there was something in between. I was born in Fallowfield, behind David Bowler yeah. Exhaust, which is probably gone. <laughs> then, ironically enough, when I was like, one till ten. I lived in Didsbury mm. on the road that ran at the side of Factory Records off Palatine yeah. Road. Right. So wow. weird. And ended up like spending half my life going in and out of there 30 years later or something. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, in Florida and you got a green card, didn't you? Because you were qualified as an alien of extraordinary ability. So I just wondered, as a young lad in Fallowfield in those days, was that ever something that you thought you'd ever be called in your life? <laughs> no, it's like having jerk on a baseball cap, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know, the, the really funny thing was I I met a woman who specialised um, in Brits coming to Florida and it was an impulsive moment. Well, you might want to call it innovative, whatever. It was my Ziggy Stardust period. The music industry was falling apart around me. I hadn't done anything wrong. I had a business, a company, should I say, with a large overhead and it was never going to be like it was. And I had a place in Orlando, so I thought... I'll see if I can emigrate. And and the the pound and the dollar were two for one at the time. You know, so a lot of Brits were buying like pool homes where they were living in two up, two downs in the northwest of England. But I thought, I, I had no idea that I was going to move out of Manchester. You've asked me literally three years before, never in a million years would I have left. But I was just turning 50 and I was pretty unemployable because I'd spent 30 years in the music industry. And you can't go to the job centre and say, what did you do? I said, well, there's a job at McDonald's. No disrespect to people that work at McDonald's, but I wouldn't have been any good at it. So, And I didn't really want to kind of shut down shop, so to speak, and then just work with a mobile phone at the end of my bed. And pretentious as it sounds, I kind of left my leg, my own little legacy in place because I came here and the people heard of me and knew me type thing. So I didn't really have any plan i thought well they love the english accent i might get a ford commercial you know i'll do a radio show we'll see what happens but i've been here 18 years so i'm staying but but i'm a citizen now so um i'm a dual citizen the world's changed but we won't go there 
Well, you said yourself you're a monk and a yank, so we'll we'll chat about that. But let's just go back to then your beginnings in the music industry. Obviously, you've had a, a massive impact on not just Manchester, but on the global music scene. So when was it when you were young, when you first started to get that passion? Did you feel that that was going to be the future for you? Well, the funny thing is, I, I kind of wrote this in the book. That's why I went back to, to do the book again, because it was kind of my growing up period. Because when I left school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I went to further education college, which was perfect for people like me who were done with school but not quite ready for work. So I went and I did a course in business studies, which is my least area of expertise. Um, but it was 70% girls and 30% boys. And I was social secretary, so I was booking all the bands, you know, Vinegar Joe with Robert Palmer in and stuff and things like that. And after that, I got a job. And again, it doesn't sound ambitious, but it's not that at all. I needed a job to buy records and go to gigs, Lisa. So I got a job. It was a crap job. From the moment I walked in, the guy next to me was talking about couldn't wait to get in the bub on a Friday. There was no inspiration. The office manager used to come in. He used to send his secretary out to buy flowers for the wife for the anniversary and some other person to go and wash his car, you know. And it was like, and I'd be gazing out the windows. And I got the train home. I used to come in and out of the train. I lived in Gatley at the time. And um, I I picked up the, the paper. Usually I picked up the Manchester Evening News to find out what gigs were happening, you know, and stuff like that. For some reason, I went to classified ads. And there was a job for a sales representative for Transatlantic Records. Well, I'd never heard of Transatlantic Records. So I didn't think anything about it. So I went back to work, and I was kind of still gazing out the window. The following morning, I went into HMV on Market Street and just flicked through the racks. I thought, oh, my God, this is folk. These are the boys of the lock, Mike Harding, Ralph McTell. I was buying Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd records, and they had a classic milestone catalogue, and none such, which was like piano rags by Joshua Riffin. But on the jazz side, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, the Love Supreme, classic jazz albums that I learned from the record retailers, because they were my education. And it wasn't one of these records I would ever have in my record collection, just personal taste. My hair was down here, you know, I used to walk into school with my Led Zeppelin album hanging out. My philosophy on that was I don't have a job in the record business if I don't get it I still don't have a job in the record business nothing ventured nothing gained so I applied for it and I didn't get it but six months later I got a call from um, this guy Ray Cooper to see if I was still interested in the job and it was like wow am I still interested dead right so we met in a (laughs) a seedy bar and he spat a sandwich out of me and said fancy the job then man (laughs) And as he pulled out to pay the bill, which was probably only about six pounds, two joints fell out of his top pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so it was meant to be. <laughs> and it's true. And I started selling records out the back of a van. This is the inspirational bit. I started selling records out the back of a van for £25 a week. But you know what, Lisa? I went out every morning. And don't forget, I was 200 miles away from head office. So I could have, like ducked and dived. I went out every morning to prove to that guy that it was the best decision ever made giving me a job. And I did really well at it, you know, because the, the, the retailers were like, my research, I got some really brilliant music into, because people say, oh, have you heard this? I used to spend like hours sitting in there, you know. But the stores that I went to, music fans were like I mean I met Pete Wiley hanging dangling over the counter at Probe Records in Liverpool you know they just hang around for the day 
And I had a shop, Impact Records, in Cheshire, and it was so funny. These two hippies were <laughs> running it. And you'd walked in, and there'd be fans on one side of the counter, and they'd be behind. This guy came up with an album in his hand, and he said, can I listen to this? He said, no, we don't, get, uh, we don't have anything to play it on. And he said, oh, you know. The guy behind the counter says, take it home and listen to it, and if you like us, drop the money off later. <laughs> They went out of business about a year later. <laughs> Extraordinary. No reason why. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Seriously, it was just like the time. Because I had to go through old pictures to put in my book. Because I was 20 when I started selling records. And I'd go to the major outlets. But I'd also got in places like Pandemonium Records and stuff and things like that. And I saw some of these pictures. And I'm there, you know, stood outside my van, big daft smile on my face. I'm 20, I'm in the music business. All my friends have got proper jobs, you know, insurance, banking, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Especially like Pandemonium Records, there's, there's like my van outside the shop and on the other side of the road, it's totally derelict. It was a shithole, Manchester, pardon my language. But so was New York and a lot of other places. But I never saw any of that because I went a job and my job was an extension of my hobby. And you, to see how Manchester's, like, evolved through the decades. I mean, I saw a lot of that because it was 2004 when I came here. But it's, it's really interesting, literally, visually looking back as well. Mm. And what places, what venues were you going to in those days? I probably went to the international, international one, the small one, like... Um, probably four or five nights a week. The Polytechnic, that's where I first saw you too, with Mark Radcliffe. And then I went the following week, Shudil, they played in a pub to 11 people in an upstairs room, you know. Those were kind of the venues. And then there was, um, you missed, the Academy was still, was, you know, vibrant as well and everything. So I was I was very much a live music person. I probably would have cleared a hall if people saw me dance anyway, so it was a really <laughs> good idea. I did go to the Hacienda, but I just used to go to kind of see friends, you know, but some of them were kind of incoherent, so I went home early. <laughs> yeah. So how did you start working at Island Records then? It's funny, actually, because I worked, started selling records in 1974, and then in 76 I moved to ABC, so I was selling Steely Dan and poker, but also a lot of country, Don Williams, you know, people like that. And then I ended up working for my all-time favourite record label. And again, it wasn't really an interview. I'd already, I had a girl who did displays for Ireland, and she said, you've got to go for this. And I thought, ah, I really like this. I've got a good relationship with the retailers, you know. I said, do I have to go and talk to DJs and laugh at, be sycophantic and laugh at all the jokes so I could get my records played? So I was kind of resistant against it. And God, this was my all-time favourite record label. So I went down for the interview well, there was nobody in when I got, because we would all been going out playing football. And they all came in with dirty knees and everything. I thought, oh, this is the right place, you know. But I'd been buying all their records in the 60s. You know, Traffic, Free, Spooky Tooth, Fairport Convention. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to work from a decade later. And they're going to give me all the records for free. And they're going to pay me. I mean, talk about a dream come true. The first band I ever worked with, well, I've never said it before, I'll say it now, was Eddie and the Hot Rods. And they were kids. They'd had, like, a top five record, you know. And they were doing a programme called Revolver, which was recorded at BBC Paddle Mill in the Midlands. It was their follow-up single. And they were full of it, you know, like drinking, drugs, the old thing, you know, like one hit. And the bass player was slumped in this chair like this. I know you can't see it, but you can. He picked a bottle up and he threw it at me <laughs> and I ducked and it smashed on the window behind me. And he said, let it be on your head. So there was a slight reservation if I had made the right job leaving sales. But it did get better from that day on. 
These are all true stories. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about tell us about the whole U2 story. So I had a friend, Neil, who worked at Ireland Records. And Mark Radcliffe, I knew because when I was at Ireland first time round, I was taking those bands in their infancy through. And and he had a he was living in a flat in Didsbury, I think, and he got a leak. And um, I said, well, why don't you stay for the weekend till the landlord sorts it out? So he's, he came to stay the weekend and stayed for two years. <laughs> <laughs> so there was so my friend Neil, who was the who worked in the press department, phoned me up and said, uh, "You got to go see this band." And to cut a long story short, Neil is the type of guy that it's easier to go and see him than not, because the rest of your life would be just <laughs> cruel and punished and you know berated for not going. So I'm sitting there with Mark and. Um, I said, you know, do you want to go see this band? We decided that we'd go. And the weird thing is, and I'll tell you why in a minute, was that he offered to drive, and he never offered to drive. I was always driving, you know. So we got in his car and we drove down to the gig, and it was at the Manchester Polytechnic, and you two were third on the bill. There was Pink Military, Wahit, which became Wah, Pete Wiley, and you two, bottom of the bill. And, you know, you know the Polytechnic and places like that. It wasn't like doing a stadium of 20,000 people when there's like the support band might be on and 9,000 are in the bar. There's kind of like 12 people at the front of the stage and 30 at the bar or something. Well, probably a bit more, maybe 100 and odd or something, but not really paying attention to the band. And I use this because I have this kind of lessons learned from rock and roll brand, you know. And you two came out that night and you got to remember, like, The Edge was a good guitar player. Adam was useless. Hopeless, you know. Larry was a pretty solid drummer, dead young. And Bono's voice, because he was so in the moment, even then, was all over the place. He, I mean, he, he, he started swaying from the, from the bars above him. The only problem with that was they were the central eating bars. <laughs> so he had, like, big red marks on his hands. <laughs> so we were, like, at the front of the stage, taking all this in. But, you know, we got home that night. Well, before we got home, we went to get the car, which had been stolen... <laughs> So we went to the police station, right, to report it and everything. Eventually got home at like two in the morning or something. That's why, I mean, it's quite ironic because I always drove apart from this night. <laughs> but, you know, when, when the gig had finished, the band came out to meet every single person who wanted to meet them. And nobody had heard mm -hmm. of them. This was like 1980. It was May 1980. And they did a succession of gigs after that, so much that I went to see them in Shude Hill. They played in an upstairs bar. To, I went on the Wednesday, Mark didn't come, to play to 11 people, and four of those people had come with me. <laughs> and it's the same as the Polytechnic. When you look at the world we live in now with social media, Bono and the boys came out, and there was no fancy dressing rooms, Lisa. There was like, you know, just literally, there was no drinks, there was no, you know, anything. Uh, but they came out, and they signed anything, and they didn't leave until everybody had got what they wanted, you know. And then they got in a van with the equipment in the back, them sitting in little airline seats, you know, the tour manager driving the bus to drive four hours in the pouring rain to get ready for the next gig because there were no days off or anything. When me and Mark got home, like I say, it was the early hours. We had a beer and sat up for a bit. There was something about them. We didn't quite know what. That's what prompted me to go and see them on the Wednesday. But, you know, when they played on that Wednesday night, I thought it was the gig and it was the sound check. And they came on at like quarter past nine and they came on and played to maybe three more people had arrived but it was nothing like a crowd and they played to those people like they play in a stadium and I go to see them when they play now I went this time round. actually it's the first time in 37 years I've ever paid to see them because my wife wanted to see them and you know I always get kind of slight 
chills. Don't get me wrong, I thought they'd do well, but I didn't know they'd do quite this well. But they play to like 30,000 people, like they're playing to 11 people in a pub. And when they played to 11 people in a pub, it was like they were playing to a stadium, you know. But I used to take that band round to every crappy little radio station for an interview like... And we're not talking Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle. We're talking like Hunslet and Widnes and places out in the sticks, you know, um, to get any amount of airplay that would go out at midnight on a Tuesday or something, you know, to try and build a following. And I remember vividly taking them into their first interview at Radio Clyde in Glasgow with a guy called Billy Sloan, who's, who's still doing it up there now. And Bono on the Edge were these excitable kind of 19-year-olds in the back of the car. And, you know, they go into their first interview. And it was raining. And I stopped the car and the wipers. And I just leant around like this. And talk about prophetic. And I said, listen, guys, I can get you in here because of who I know. Only you can get yourself back in here because of who you are. And I've listened to those words yeah. now and I think, wow, that was pretty kind of, you know, motivated yeah. to say that. <laughs> so they went in. But the point being is subliminally... I wasn't doing myself any harm because then the guy phones you up and says, oh, great guys, so anytime they're in town, bring them back in, you know. Um, but, you know, you've got that thing where they go in and, the, uh, and their job is to sell their band. And if you look at, at, at a band like you two, Larry, and I've had these conversations with Bono over that time, you know, this wasn't what they were doing. This was what they had to do. Larry and Bono both lost their mothers when they were like 13. So instead of being those kids that were like, why me? Why don't I have a mum and all my kids in school do? That was it. Larry formed the band in the, in the canteen at the school that we're all going to. They were just 100% totally into that band, you know. And we built up a close relationship in as much as I was learning my trade while they were learning theirs. And we got a solid little media base of people, you know, and the, the audiences were slowly building up and everything. But they wouldn't have worked with a label like... Well, Sony was CBS at the time, or EMI and Warners. Island Records were into them for a quarter of a million pounds in tour support. Any label would have dropped a band by then. It took me like 18 months to get them on the radio. Nobody would persevere with a band like that time. So you don't have a, a level that pays basically all your head office bills for the year by putting a record out, unless they had a label like Island that were committed to them. And I find those things great because, you know, you wonder if a band can reach that level again due to the current climate. They were making money off the selling records, the mm -hmm. record companies, albums, not downloads and MP3s and stuff like that, you know. Anyway, I go into the boring old man bit if I go And on the, um, I mean, you've talked there about the qualities and the values of that band, you know, as young people, that they were prepared to put the graft in. They didn't expect it to come overnight. So did you think that was typical of the of the musicians, the artists you work with back in the day? And is, is that different now, would you say? I don't really have my finger on the pulse now in as much as I'm not really promoting people. I mean, there's some people around here, but no disrespect to the Tampa Bay area. It's not the hub that Manchester is. And I always try to, in my own little way, without kind of looking like I'm nagging at people you know it's kind of like there are some talented people here who are content at playing beach bars for tips you know where they do jimmy buffett covers and things then they'll be doing them till they fall off stage and that's the end of their life and they've done beach bars for 50 years but when i was in manchester and these are all people that you'll know you know i got a radio show and i mean the reason i got a radio show was radcliffe got a job at radio one basically i was annoyed when i got on the radio i banged on the door and said to tony ingham what the F, you know? He said, what's up, Toe? I said, I said, Radcliffe's moved to London. 
And I said, you've got another programme on at 11 o'clock on a Friday night playing playlist stuff. I said, listen, man, I live here and I work here. You're a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week radio station. Can't you find three hours a week to put on up-and-coming bands? Do you know who comes from this area? Never mind Graham Nash and going back that far and Freddie and the Dreamers, you know, started reeling off all the names and this and that. So he looked at me and he said, well, why don't you do it? So I looked at him and I said, right, I will. You know, I've never done a mobile disco or wedding <laughs> or a bar mitzvah in my life. And I'm broadcasting on the largest station outside of London. So I went out and they wanted to get me... A pre- and it, it sounds really arrogant, but it's not. But it's kind of like, you know, I had a good record collection. And I had, you know, in the same way that you want to turn your friends onto music, I had like 50,000 people used to listen to my show because it went out into Liverpool and stuff. But my first three shows, I had... New order on the first one. Tony brought them in, Tony Wilson. So they all came in. We put them in the big studio. They were all smoking a joint. It was a Sunday afternoon at two o'clock, you know. And, <laughs> and like Tony did the interview. So I was at, that was my first programme. Well, for a band who'd never been in the station and were pretty popular, it wasn't a bad start. My second show was with you 2 And my third show was Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who were the phenomenon at the time, 1984. That was when I started. Um, all bands that I was working with. Now, they didn't need the exposure. They thought it was hilarious that I was on the radio. But, you know, when I got on the radio, like, you know, Mick Middles, Andy Spinoza, you know, all these people who around there, they couldn't wait to write about me and kind of let people know that, you know, there's another show that's replaced Mark Radcliffe. So supportive. I, when I came here, my alien of extraordinary ability, and sorry if it sounds like, a pretentious old tart but you know if you look it up on the government website it's awarded to a small percentage of people who've reached the pinnacle of success in the field of endeavor arts and music you know and i never mentioned it to anybody now i mentioned it to everybody it's like my phd (laughs) now if i come to a place that's not the hub culturally musically like manchester is we have a a paper here creative loafing yeah the equivalent of what city life was back in the day do you not think if you were a musician living here, you would like to know somebody like me? That'd be a great idea. But it's their job. Not, not, I don't need it, you know, like I'll, I'll get by. But what I'm saying is the support that you got from the infrastructure of the creatives in Manchester, and I say this all the time with every interview that I'm doing, I've not been there for 18 years, Lita, but I needed to put food on the table and pay the rent. So I felt that the best thing for me to do was to, reinvent myself in the way that my heroes had done you know but when it comes to the creative industries it's not just the bands in Manchester and they were really important for the growth of the city you know for people feeling proud of where they lived and everything and you know like I say if I look back on on those periods and the support from the infrastructure and you know Red Alert those girls worked for me they went on to start their own company Mark Riley was working for me he went that's where he met Mark Radcliffe you know they start they ended up doing the breakfast show on radio one of the things so I kind of from an artist development point of view it didn't begin and end with groups for some unknown reason I had the ability to nurture and develop talent from within TMP Tony Michael's promotions my intern, this girl who phoned me up from Cardiff University, she said, I'm moving to Manchester and, and people tell me I have to come and work for you. I said, well, that's very nice to hear. I said, but there's no room at the inn, meaning I had the full complement of staff. So she said, well, can we just meet for a drink anyway? I said, yeah, we're going to have a drink, you know, because I was going to the International on Saturday. I thought we met like 100 yards down the road. 
And she said to me, she said, I'll come and work for you for nothing. So I went, I can't turn that down. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, you were making cups of tea, but guess what? I make cups of tea. We all muck in, as it were. And I said, I can't put you in a car to take an artist to a radio station. I can put you in the back seat to observe what was happening. But, you know, our reputation lies, you know, these people go back and talk about how their day, you know, doing regional promotion went. Um, she stayed with me for um, two years, I think. Uh, Estelle was her name. She moved, uh, she worked for a bit of time in So What, Simpler Ed's office. She ended up managing Coldplay. So what I'm saying is, you don't go to school to learn this. They have music schools now, but people like me were like the boxers out of the ghetto. You fought your way. I came from a generation of people that made it up as we went along. So did Dave Aslam, Andy Spinoza, Bob Dickinson, Mick Middles, you know, John Robb. We just went out and, and did our own thing, you know. And there's a camaraderie that, you know, like I say, it was so funny. My son, Joe, uh, Joe who works at McCann, you know, they did a big event at the Midland Hotel. And he sent me all these photographs. There's him and Uki. There's him and Rowetta. There's him and, and um, Dave, Dave Aslam, you know. Like, that's my son. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and they're all smiling. because You know, brings you back to a time and a place. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was so... There's nothing like music leads mm. to take you back to a time and a place and invariably with a person. So the thought of talking to you about my hometown, you know, Bruce Springsteen has a song, My mm. Hometown, you know. It's like romance. Yeah. It's, it, it just, you know, I haven't been for six years and the good thing in that is I'd feel like a tourist when I came because Deansgate was Kendall's when I was yes. there. <laughs> like now there's all these <laughs> high rises and things, isn't there? <laughs> But um, yeah, so so, I, so like I say, the 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 ability to to build things from within, like I say, you know, stuff like the hacienda. I mean, I always compare like TMP in a way to factory because it was it was like almost like a a culture within, but not a business. And I say this to people now: if I'd started TMP today, we'd be dead and buried in six months, you know, because it wasn't a business. It was like if we got busier, I bring I brought a guy in to do specialist radio. Mm would do that mm. you know but because i thought well you know the pixies throwing music new order depression all these bands that we were doing that didn't necessarily all fit into daytime radio but a lot of the people you've mentioned then though they still got that passion that drive you know there's still such kind of stalwarts in the manchester music industry well that's what i mean mm. when when you did when you talk to clint obviously that's what mm. connected us you know but it just reminded me of clint coming in you know and and Noel Gallagher was rolling, rolling for the Inspiral Carpets and, you know, listening to Dave's stories, you know, from where he came. I like that thing about that bit where he was talking about people would come up and he'd be a little aloof, but he'd be really personable with it. And it's funny because when I was going to the International, it was kind of like, listen, we're all hustlers, but it's how you hustle. I had a guy come up to me once in the International and he, he gave me like this cassette. No, I think, it was a, I think it was a vinyl. And he said, if I give you this, will you play it Saturday? I looked at him and I said, it didn't work like that. <laughs> so I said, listen, if it's good, I'll play it. If it's crap, I won't go it. But do you know what? If Echo and the Bunnymen and you 2 and people bring me crap records, I won't play them anyway. I have to sit there for three hours and listen to the show. I'm not going to play stuff I don't like. And then I had another guy that came up one night, and I was there with my girlfriend at the time. And he comes and he gives me his thing, and I stick it in my back pocket, you know, and shake his hand and blah, blah, blah. And he's standing next to me for the set. So I lean over and say, listen... I'm having a night out with my lady. <laughs> I don't need to be your friend. You know, you give me a record. Could you pre-give, have the respect? But I'm doing him a favour by saying, this isn't really how you hustle. <laughs> you know, this is like a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> 
I read that you said when artists are at the top of the game, they aren't arseholes. One of our values at Roland Dransfield is no dickheads. What would you say for you been like the overriding qualities that you need in the music industry and, and that you've seen in people who've gone on to be successful? Well, talent isn't enough. One thing I always say, Lisa, is the, the biggest artists are the easiest to work with. You know why? They don't arrive late. They don't arrive wasted. They're not obnoxious. No matter how many interviews they've done, they're personable. And they go away making that person who's interviewed them feel like they were happy to be there, you know. And when you've had the... It's almost like knighthood working with David Bowie. Talk about dignity, respect, trust. David Bowie wanted to meet everybody that he worked with. So when I came and and got introduced to him and got royal approval... That was kind of like great in itself. But the, but the thing is that he's had the same team of people around him. So there's that consistency. Same with a band like U2, where they retain loyalty. Because they're proud to be part of people that are all in it for the same reasons and stuff. And I think I was able to do what I did um, because of the people around me. Like I had a great infrastructure of a team around me. Everybody worked for me. You know, I used to almost give them one piece of advice. Well, whatever you screw up on, I'll pull you out of. It wasn't. You know, because we were working with Simon Cowell and people, you know, and he'd listen to him and then put the phone down and go, you know, get on with it. But I do feel that um, I learned subliminally from the greatest. You know, Chris Blackwell, Ahmed Ertigan, Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss, who started A&M Records. These were music people. They were not accountants and lawyers looking at market share and return for investors and things like that. And I, I just want to share my experiences into inspiring people to believe that you know, that whole do what you love thing and stuff. And, and it is like, I'll never forget Manchester, not because I was born there, but because I grew there. And there's no courses to go on or things like that to, to learn a trade like this. You just have to literally go out there and it was a great education. And like now, I don't can't do what I did and neither do I want to because people said you miss your job. I said, well, what is it to miss? You know, I wouldn't want to go in and download 200 playlists off my computer. We'd be on the phone talking to people. Well, do you like it? Any chance? No? Okay, thanks. We had information to feed back, and, and you look at how a lot of those bands grew, and every person involved with the development of an act played their part. Mm. Yeah, it was all interconnected, wasn't it? And and it's and it still is now yeah. from, you know, you're talking some of those names and those, as I say, those people are still making those connections, you know, 30 years on. What would you say that you'd want your legacy to be in terms of the impact that you've created in the music industry or, or those artists that have come through? Well, I got a great idea for a T-shirt. Oh, nobody ripped it <laughs> off. It was going to be like, have some fun. And then on the back, it was going to say, get shit done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Uh, what, what would my legacy? I, I just, you know, I, I was just like, uh, listen, there's a part of me that's a hopeless romantic, you know, so I, I don't have any shame in, in saying, like, living the dream. You know, how many people get to do a job that's an extension of their hobby? It's like when I got up and, and drove to my first call, it wasn't, I didn't have the Monday morning blues or anything like that because there were no times. You just did what you had to do whenever you had to do it. I mean, I had some very sad moments, like when Bob Marley died and I had to go and organise all the obituaries in London, you know, and I had people phoning up for records and almost like excited because they didn't have to put a show together. It was going to be Bob Marley music. And I was thinking the same happened here when TV came and interviewed me when Bowie died. And I woke up to all these texts and emails and stuff. And I said, listen, it's kind of like 
I know you've got deadlines and everything. Can I just have some time to grieve? Because first and foremost, I was like a fan. It was so emotional, you know, because it does bring back an important part of your life, never mind your career. I feel like I'm on a mission to help keep the legacy alive of some of the greatest artists that ever lived. And I have no shame in saying that. You can really see that. And I've listened to some of the Moments That Rock episodes and there's some cracking stories in there. So I would definitely urge anybody that's into the music to definitely uh, subscribe. Thank you very much, Lisa. <laughs> the thing is with that is, is my, my premise was, you know, if I like the stories, then why wouldn't other people? To hear, like, the things that have happened along the way and everything like that brings a huge amount of fondness. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to be this boring old bloke that you come out there and let me tell you when the music industry was great. You know, I want to kind of be, be relevant today. But my moments that rock, there was a really poignant moment about 10 years ago. I was living in Tampa. Um... Actually, it was longer. And I went to see a band playing in this rehearsal room in St. Pete. So I travelled over the water to, to watch him. And there was a sign on the wall that said, it's a quote from an Italian poet called Cesare Pavese. It says, we don't remember days, we remember moments. And that word moment, every time I say it, it kind of sends shivers up my back because we all have moments. It's great hearing like a lot of the people that I grew up with and stuff. And there's a lot of old artists I want I want to bring in and just hear them have an opportunity to tell the stories. The only problem with a podcast is that I'm not in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's edit me out of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can hear you, you can hear you sometimes. I listened to the one with Rowetta, which was brilliant, that story, and she's obviously, she talks about... Oh, right, I'll listen, I'll listen to Rowetta's and yours. Now, listen, I'm quiet compared to Rowetta. <laughs> Everybody's quiet compared to Rowetta. <laughs> right, so it was, it was very good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I've got some um, quick fire questions for you about Manchester. Yeah, fire So, away. okay. What song from an artist that you've worked with or a, a Manchester band or artist would you say most sums up Manchester? Well, personally, I would have to say Blue Monday by New Order because mm. there's a personal attachment in as much as, you know, that's when I sat down with Tony Wilson and not so much taught him about regional promotion, but told him that, you know, listen, these DJs are not going to go out and buy the record, but if you put it in front of them, they're going to go and listen to it. And obviously, like as other people were playing it and things, it's going to get some traction and things. It becomes the biggest 12-inch record of all time. That's nothing to do with me. It's the fact that it's a great record. But it does remind me a lot of Manchester because it reminds me going to their building in Palatine Road and, and you know, waiting for Tony to come in because I had to talk to him about it and things and stuff. And... um you know, I hate using the word, like I say, education, but I felt it was my duty to tell a significant, very cool record label that people loved, that maybe the people up in the wilds of Scotland or in the depths of wherever got an opportunity to hear it on that one show that they listened to, but the DJ probably couldn't go out and spend two ninety nine buying it or, or however it was. So that, that does really bring back a lot of good memories. What's your favourite Manchester venue from growing up here? I did talk about the international, but Corbiers and places like that. I mean, and they did have a local bands night as well. So yeah, oh, it's going down memory lane there. I used to go to Salford University, and there's a free trade hall. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I used to love it. Oh, my, oh, <laughs> no. The answer to that, beyond any shadow of a doubt, Lisa, is the yeah. free trade hall. Yeah, I saw Led Zeppelin there. I saw Bowie there. I saw Pink Floyd. The Pink Floyd gig, uh, John Peel was compare right, and it was with Sid Barrett. And John Peel came on, and behind the huge Richard Wright keyboard setup and things, the lights went down, 
and there was this smell of bacon, right? And for eight minutes, John Peel was frying bacon <laughs> behind the desk. And we were all, like, starving hungry before the Pink Floyd came on, you know, and then the light show, hypnosis and everything. It was fantastic. I'll never forget that. Listen, I've got to ask you also, to ask everybody, what do you order at the chippy? Nothing, because it'd be pretty cold when it arrived. We don't have <laughs> well, chippies no, here. No, what would you be ordering? <laughs> well, I used to go to the chippy every Friday yes. night when I lived in Gatley. Chips, peas and curry. Chips, peas and curry. Chips, peas and curry sauce. Do they still do that? Yeah. But in a newspaper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was Friday night chippy tea, and it was always a newspaper. Curry sauce was, on the side. Was, I loved yeah. it. And it was always busy. You'd be queuing out the door because Friday nights were chippy well, night. We just had this conversation with some of the younger members of our team when we, had, we recorded a podcast last week, and um, our guest said, and a scallop, and they had no idea what a scallop was. They thought it was the fish type and they've never heard of a scallop. And like, the, the scallop was what like filled you up on the way home before you actually had your chicken Is it scallop tea. or scallop? No, the scallop is the fried potato in batter and a scallop oh, is the fish yeah. type, which we, yeah, we didn't have in yeah, Salford in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're not many scallops over there, Tony, I don't think, in Florida. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, as I say, people should read your book and listen to the podcast because there's some incredible stories there. There's a lot of Manchester in there, obviously. And thanks for telling your story. And the thread for me is how much you've grafted, all the opportunities you've taken, but also, really importantly, how you've helped people. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you for helping us to build this city. Well, I'm really, you know, and I don't use this word lightly, I'm really honoured to be on it because, you know, it's, I've done a lot of these because I've reached out to a bunch of people and you've got to do it. You've, I've got a book out. I don't, I'm not saying to people to buy it. I'm just saying here it is. It's, I've got it out. But to do something so close to home, I feel like I'm there, you know, and it's very special for me. So all I can say is thank you a million oh, for inviting thank me. Thank you so much. And we hope we see you soon. We'll go to the chippy and you can get some of the uh, mushy peas. <laughs> I do have a Go Fly Me page where you can come over and we go to the chippy, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get on it now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Tony Michaelides built this city by keeping the legacy alive for some of the world's greatest artists, by being a mank and a yank, and by having some fun and getting shit done. On the next episode of We Built This City, you'll hear from the artist Dave O'Howarth. That episode will be available on the 13th of October. If you want to find out more about how Roland Transfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk, where you can find us on Instagram at Roland Transfield or Twitter at rdprtweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 26 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.